Hello and welcome to the Harris English Podcast for Power and Conflict Poetry. In this podcast, we will be analysing Percy Bysshe Shelley's poem, Ozymandias. Ideally, you will have your poetry anthology or a copy of the poem in front of you, so you can make annotations as we go. If not, just type Ozymandias by Shelley into Google and you should find it easily online. To begin... I'd like you to think about a well-known leader from either present day or history. However, this person should be notorious, a person considered to be infamous for their actions. An obvious historical choice might be a figure like Adolf Hitler. Take a few seconds and have this person in your mind. Now, I'd like you to think about the various ways in which they used their power when they had it. What were their beliefs about the world? Their beliefs about themselves? Pertinently, how did they exercise these beliefs and what acts did they commit with the power they had? Under their name, make a list of tyrannical deeds associated with this person. Pause the podcast and do this now. Finished? What were the acts you noted down? Did they involve oppression, discrimination, acts of war, absolute power? These are all buzz phrases we might associate with somebody we would call a tyrant. In addition, one common characteristic of tyrants tends to be a degree of hubris, spelt H-U-B-R-I-S. This abstract noun is an ancient Greek term for excessive pride. History teaches us that hubris invariably fuels the powerful actions of tyrants. Their unflagging self-belief arguably drives them to exercise their power in the most extreme and unfaltering ways. Think now about power and about hubris as we read Ozymandias. And as we do, highlight any words or phrases that stand out to you, particularly those that link to tyranny and hubris. Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions red, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So what words and phrases jumped out at you? Did you notice the semantic field of tyranny and cruelty through Shelley's use of words such as frown, wrinkled lip, sneer, cold command, mocked and despair. Remember the importance of individual words in helping you to very quickly gauge the feelings and attitudes in a poem. Indeed, these phrases exemplify the cold-hearted nature of Ozymandias, the character who is at the centre of this poem. In order to understand who this character is, we must firstly research a historical figure known as Ramesses II. If you have access to a computer, pause the podcast Google him and write down five facts you discover about him. His name is spelt R-A-M-E-S-S-E-S the second. Pause the podcast and do this now.
Okay, so what did you find? Here are five essential facts you should know about Ramesses II, which could prove to be useful context for you when exploring the poem Ozymandias. 1. Ramesses II was a mighty and powerful pharaoh of Egypt, reigning in the 13th century BC. 2. During his rule, the Egyptian army is estimated to have totaled some 100,000 warriors. 3. Ramesses had built more statues of himself than any other known pharaoh, and even allegedly had his name inscribed on the statues of other pharaohs who had preceded him. 4. One particular statue of Ramesses, a colossal 83-ton statue, was unearthed in a temple near Memphis. The statue was in six broken parts and had visibly deteriorated. 5. Ramesses' name in ancient Greek is Ozymandias, which brings us full circle back to the poem. Ramesses II, or Ozymandias, is the Egyptian tyrant whose statue is the centrepiece of Shelley's poem. Bearing this context in mind, we're now going to go through the poem, looking at some of the big ideas, as well as the key methods utilised by the poet. Let's start by considering the form and structure of the poem, which may give us some further clues as to the poet's broader intentions. Firstly, count the number of lines in the poem. How many did you count? There are 14 lines in the poem, which may be ringing bells for some of you, because this makes the poem a sonnet. Interesting that sonnets are usually reserved for love poems. This could be an ironic nod by Shelley at Ozymandias' self-love, or indeed his love for power. However, also interesting is how the rhyme scheme of this sonnet does not follow a traditional ABAB pattern, but instead becomes disrupted, which might point to the fact that Ozymandias' power will, and indeed does, eventually fade. And this is one of the more prevalent ideas in the poem, that power, no matter how strongly it has grown and maintained, will inevitably dwindle with the passage of time. Let's briefly look at the poem's opening line, which is written in first-person perspective by an unknown speaker who tells the reader that she or he met a traveller from an antique land. What follows in the rest of the poem is actually this traveller's story and not the speaker's, an interesting device called a frame narrative. This creates a sense of mythology, time and distance between the reader and Ozymandias, emphasising his long-lost power from the outset. This is exemplified by Shelley's use of the pre-modifying noun antique. What follows then in the traveller's account is how he encounters on his journeys Two vast and trunkless legs of stone, our first meeting of the statue of Ozymandias, or what remains. The juxtaposition here of vast and trunkless sets up the repeated motif of a once mighty power having been held long ago, but is now reduced to just its decaying base. In line four, we're given a description of another chunk of this broken up statue, the head. Its visage, or face, is half sunk in the sand, as if gasping for air, or indeed power. We then learn very quickly what sort of ruler Ozymandias was from the statue's wrinkled lip and sneer, striking imagery that reinforces the authoritarianism of the powerful pharaoh. The alliterative phrase cold command gives us a sense of the direct and unfeeling rule Ozymandias, or Ramses II, had in the 13th century BC. The speaker, still relaying the traveller's story, 
then comments on how the sculptor must have read Ozymandias' passions well, as they are still clear even though they now exist on these lifeless pieces of rubble. In line 8, personification is used to exaggerate Ozymandias' cruel rule. It is his hand itself that mocked his people, and his heart that fed, this latter image connoting brutality and barbarism on the part of the ruler. We then reach the centrepiece of the poem, in lines 10 and 11, the pedestal featuring an ancient inscription by the king himself. This couplet could be inspired by the writings of an ancient Greek historian, Diodorus Siculus, who reportedly witnessed a giant Egyptian statue and read its inscription, which begins, King of Kings, Ozymandias I am. For the full inscription, try googling Diodorus Siculus now. In lines 10 and 11 then, we hear the immortalised words of Ozymandias himself and his true hubris is shown as he draws importance to his own name, describes himself as king of kings and commands that the mighty, perhaps his enemies, look on his work and despair. This show of bravado and arrogance solidifies Ozymandias' hubris as a true tyrant. This climax of power is highlighted so clearly by Shelley here so we can see it crash down in the final three lines of the poem. And it is in these final three lines, lines 12 to 14, that Shelley's final big ideas are explored. As nothing besides remains, the tone suddenly shifts, and the reader realises that this sheer show of conceit by the ruler is now long since gone. He, along with his power, had died, and nothing is left aside from a colossal wreck an unsubtle, ironic dig at the magnitude of the ruler's rocky remnants. Ozymandias' power is now boundless and bare, the alliterative B-plosives condemning him to mere rubble and memory. Shelley's final line reminds the reader that nature will always usurp humanity in the end, and that no matter who we are, no matter what power we hold, on our brief moment on this world, the lone and level sands will always stretch far away. And there you have it, Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. Hopefully you'll agree, a smart, powerful poem about the fleeting nature of power, tyranny and hubris. Perhaps a warning we should all heed in modern life today. Now pause the podcast and consider, which poems could you compare Ozymandias with? Do that now and make a list. So when thinking about comparing Ozymandias to other poems in your collection, you may want to think about the theme of individual power, as seen in Browning's My Last Duchess. Both Browning and Shelley challenge the arrogance of powerful men, and in both there is a conflict between the appearance and reality of the protagonist's power. This could be especially interesting when considering gender studies in the 21st century. Nature, too, is a theme worth exploring, and here you could draw comparisons with Heaney's Storm on the Island, as both Heaney and Shelley portray how humanity's power is vulnerable to the strength of nature and time. The strange power of the huge nothing highlighted by Heaney matches nicely with the lone and level sands that last far beyond humanity's reach in Ozymandias. So what do you think about Shelley's portrayal of power, hubris, and the infallible rule of nature? Is all power merely temporary? Do you think Shelley suggests we should fear nature's hold over us, accept it? Or perhaps we may even find it oddly humbling and reassuring to know our small place in this vast world. 
This was a Harris English podcast on power and conflict poetry, studying the poem Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. 